Erev Tov, Boker Tov, uh, Erev Tov and Chodesh Tov to everybody here in Yerushalayim, and Boker Tov and Chodesh Tov to everyone uh, in, in the rest of the world. Um, uh, tonight's shir is a very distinct privilege for me. Uh, Shavuot, uh, which begins this week, is the art site of my two namesakes, uh, Rav Pinchas uh, Ben Dov Nusen uh, and Haraveli Melech Ben uh, Yisrael Fishman. And uh, we dedicate this year to their memory, Hashem Yimkom Damam. Um, they were both killed in Auschwitz. And uh, it's a rare, almost eerie privilege to be here, sitting in Yerushalayim and teaching Yeshayahu uh, on the eve of their yard site. Uh, we chose to combine uh, two prakim, Mem Dalet and Mem Hey, uh, and you'll see uh, the kinship between the two of them in a moment. Let's start with the beginning of the parak. I'm not going to read uh, all the psukim because they're quite a bit, uh, but mostly I'll be speaking here f- uh, for and reading uh, um, for emphasis. So the very first word which we encountered last week, vata, drags us, demands our presence immediately. Last week we talked about it in the sense of tshuva, and now the navi says shema. So. The, the, the parak starts off with two very, very powerful words, v'ata, as in pay attention, and shma, listen up. So think back to Yeshayahu Perak Aleph, Shimu Shamayim Vazini Aretz. There's something new here. There's something novel. Uh, or maybe it's just a continuation of last week's parak. We'll see. Now pay attention, so pay attention here to the, the different... Uh, adjectives or the different names being used to describe the Jewish people. So he addresses them. I would just uh, a spoiler alert here. The word Yeshurun which is a, uh, a synonym for Yaakov and for Yisrael, it appears four times in Tanakh, only once in Sefer Yeshayahu, and it's here. And the, the, the Nafi goes on to say that uh, I want you to listen, I have a special message that will relate, relate al zarecha uvechati el tzatzaecha, I have a blessing for your descendants, your descendants, He's naming, he's calling out the Jewish people by name. And here is one of the most powerful psukim uh, that you would find anywhere in Tanakh, and certainly here in Yeshayahu, it's like, you know, it's like being in the botanical gardens where every, every flower is so rare. God says, I am the King of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel. Look in the green, you'll see that the, the word Galo and Redeemer appear any number of times in this barrack. Hashem Tzvakot, the full, the Lord of hosts. I'm the first, I'm the last, and I was here before everyone. I will be here at the end of the world. Umin bala dai ein Elohim, and there is no one else. There are no other force in the universe that runs the universe or is comparable to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. 
And he goes on to say, No one's like me who can... We've had this theme before, that God being first uh, and God being the Almighty, uh, can, the, the present, the future, the past, they're all one, uh, one time space in front of God. There's, no, there's really no past and present or future in, 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 in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's um, time cycle. And here he goes immediately, after having uh, claimed the space that belongs uniquely to God, he takes out his hatchet again, if you will, and he's busy with the Yotzrei Pesel, uh, with the carpenters, uh, and all the people who make, and all the adornments for idols. And now we've got a, uh, a very strong phrase here, Levilti Ho'il. All of that goes for naught. And he says, Vayesehu Kitavnit Ish, they, they make the idols in their own images. Again, part of what we've seen in the past, where Yeshayahu uh, pokes fun at the and ridicules uh, the craftsmen who make the idols that they de- then go- bow down to. Uh, we'll come back to uh, this pasuk here in a bit later in more detail, but just to read it here, so uh, think barbecue, right? So they're, they've got their little uh, getchka, they've got their little idol, and half of the meat is consumed, the other part they're eating, and uh, they're, they're all warned by the experience. The experience. Uh, they're, fi- they're warming themselves at their own fires. And after all of that, uh, he's, he's, uh, they've produced the idol, they've, created the, uh, they've cooked the dinner, um, and now they're turning to the idol and asking the idol to help, the, help them out. And we'll come back here because uh, Yeshua has lots more to say about them, but we want to move on to the next uh, part of the parak here. So after this uh, additional attack on the idols, which we'll try and put in perspective again, uh, he returns to the language he started out before, this very special language about Yaakov Yisrael. And here he's speaking to the nation. He's saying, you are my, you are my children. Uh, I created you. Uh, we have a relationship that will never be broken. And then the a pasuk, a verse that we all know from the davening, Again, the word redemption, God promises that because of his particular and unique relationship to the Jewish people, he ultimately, the Jews will do tshuva, Hashem will accept our tshuva, a theme we've had before, and now they're being cast away like scattering clouds on a day like today, here in Jerusalem anyways. And again, the redemptive theme, and all the all the heavens are rejoicing. Ki ga'al Hashem et Yaakov, uv'it Yisrael yitpa'ar, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is being praised in the nations for redeeming the Jewish people. When is this redemption? What is the redemption? That's what we're getting to in a moment here. Ko amar adinoi go'alech ve'yotzrecha mibaten anochi adunai, so 
And again, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is claiming this, this special relationship to the Jewish people. HaOmer L'Yerushalayim Tushav L'Ariyudati Banenar Bechovotah Akomeim Something new here, he turns to the Jerusalemites and he says, I'm going to bring you home. Um, this is the Gula we're talking about. And then here's the line that is one of two that is absolutely stunning, uh, uh, quite unbelievable. Um, uh, we're not going into the academic scholarship of it, but uh, look at the last verse in chapter 44. Translation, the same God, right? The one who said that he's going to return the Jews back to Jerusalem. Uh, he's uh, announcing to Koresh, presumably Cyrus, Roi, my shepherd. Any other shepherds you know? Moshe is a shepherd, right? The, the patriarchs are a shepherd. All of a sudden, we have Cyrus the, the Great, king of Persia, being referred to as a, uh, as a shepherd of the Jewish people. And this Koresh, this Cyrus, will do everything that I want him to do. And this Koresh is going to tell Yerushalayim, uh, command as God wishes, that Yerushalayim should be rebuilt and that the Beit HaMikdash will be uh, uh, founded once again. Uh, the first Pasuk in the very next parak, God is calling out to Koresh, again, his, his servant, he says, I've, I've brought you to power, I've used my right hand to shtel you, as you would say in Yiddish, to put you in, in your, in your, uh, on your throne, I've destroyed other nations, um, and all of this, now look in the red here, Leman, 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 pounding home uh, in the red, that there's a purpose to this. It's not just an accident of history that Cyrus becomes kings, king of Persia and he subdues the Babylonians who were the power in the world, the nation that came after the Assyrians who are alive in the time of Yeshayahu. And uh, every sort of treasure is going to be given to Cyrus and all of this is Leman Avdi Yaakov Yisrael Bechiri. There's a divine purpose here. Cyrus is given uh, the realm of the universe, so to speak. He's king of the world. He's not called King Cyrus the Great for nothing. Um, and all of this is Leman, 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 because Hashem has a plan. Yotzer Oru Choshech, we say it every morning. Ani Hashem God is turning night into day, day into night. He's turning the gullus into and the and the uh, diaspora into and the darkness of the diaspora into into daylight, into gula. The, the, the we refer to Hashem Goalecha multiple times, and then of course we can't have uh, a redemption without tzedek uh, and tzedakah, uh, the the bywords of Yeshayahu. And then he says, um, he returns to mocking the idolaters. And he says, Can a lump of clay say to the potter how he should be formed? And even more so, Does the fetus tell its parents who it's supposed to be? 
We're going to come back to this and have some fun with this, God willing, a little bit. And HaKadosh Baruch who proclaims, of course, Anochi asiti eretz v'adam aleha barati ani yadai natayu shomayim v'chol tzvam tziveti. Everything that happens, God says, I'm the one who's moving this. I'm operating tzedek. I'm bringing mishpat to the world. Um, and although you can't see me because I'm a kel mistater, I am nonetheless behind the redemption of the Jewish people. And then from the slichot prayer, uh, straight out of Yishayahu, Yisrael noshab Adonai teshuat olamim, lo tevoshu kalmu ad olmei ad. We are in the, in the chapters of consolation. I mean, here, Kodesh Baruch Hu says that the Jewish people will be uh, given their redemption, they'll be helped out, and it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu who will be doing that. And uh, just to add to the multiple dimensions of this parak, uh, Memhei here, uh, the, uh, w- w- we'll speak about this in really just a moment, but just quote the Pasuk, God created the world. God did not create the world to be a wilderness. Uh, he wanted people to inhabit the world. Uh, and he says, God said, I didn't make a big secret of myself. I appeared at Sinai. I told you uh, right from the beginning what my plan was. And uh, he says, Turn away from your idols, pay attention to what I say. My word will, is, there's no going back on my word. Um, and all of the Jewish people will see the ultimate tzedek. The asterisk, I just couldn't help, I'm just going to uh, refer to it and not explain very much about the Pasuk Lo L'shevet Yitzhara, um, we find this as a source for the mitzvah of uh, having children. The Mishnah in Yevamos uh, makes reference to it, the Gemara in Gitin makes reference to the same uh, thing, and when the Sefer HaKinuch, uh, one of the, the many commentators who counted up uh, the mitzvahs of the Torah, um, uh, although we think of uh, the, the commandment uh, to, uh, to have children uh, related to pru or vu, um, but as you see here in the Chinuch, there's another dimension to it, uh, and he quotes Misharshe's mitzvah zu miyushav. It's not just that people are supposed to have children, but the world is supposed to be an inhabited place, and he quotes our Perik, Pasuk Yerchet Lo Tohu Okay. So the first uh, part of our shir uh, is really uh, starts out with the very beginning, and the first question that we raised, Shma. Uh, when he when the Navi says Shema Va'at Avata Altira, what is he really referring to? Is this a is this a continuation of the previous chapter, or is there something new here? So the Ibn Ezra says, well, no, Shema Atatov. This isn't about Chuva anymore. This is about listening to something else. The word Vata here is not about Chuva. God's demanding our attention because he's got some really wonderful news. He's talking about the Gula and he wants us to hear. The Radak is all over this in the very same way, and he says, All the stuff about Yisrael, about Yishurun, about Yisrael in the Geula, this is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to take care of his servants, the Jewish people. So according to Ibn Ezra and Radak, 
and as the Abarbanel as well. Uh, these are different aspects of a new, a, a new topic. Reblazer mi Barcelona, mi Bogensi, and uh, the Malbim think that it's still about tshuva. I just wanted to mention. Now, uh, there is uh, something really fascinating uh, about all this uh, business uh, uh, in, in these two chapters about the idolatry. And uh, the incentive here, or, or the, uh, the, the driving force behind this, is an idea that I think I've mentioned in the past. Uh, if not, uh, this is a good time to mention it. Nechama uh, Leibovitz, felt very strongly that when we read Psukim in Tanakh, um, if, if they seem similar, you need to look again, because there's, there's, the Torah is not just repeating itself, and the Navi is really not just interested in repeating himself. So if we're going back to talk about uh, paganism and idolatry in, in chapters uh, 44 and 45, there's a reason for it. So look at here. So there's no question that, that Yeshayahu is, is you know, attacking them, uh, and in some ways the same way that he did before. He talks about Harash Etzim, the carpenters, Vayesau Ketavne Ish, right? So, and now, all of a sudden, we find something very, very different here, and we're going to see the depth and, God willing, some dimension to why he's actually shifting, because he's no longer content here with just poking fun at the people making it. He says, Here we read this the Pasuk in terms of their, this barbecue, I said, thinking. And so he's saying, really? Uh, let me ask you something. When you're sitting there and you're having your barbecue and your, 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 your uh, sacrifice to the idols, who's eating that, actually? So half of it's on, on, the, on the altar here for the idol, uh, and and uh, you know who's going to eat that part? It's the same guy who's eating the, uh, the part that's that's still that's already done. You know, think uh, well done, and uh, as opposed to rare, he's already eating the rare uh, um, shish kebab, and he's going to consume the, the 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 rest. So what we have here is Isaiah intensifying his attack because what he's really interested in is is exposing the mindset of the idolaters. And he's asking a disarmingly simple question. He's asking, who are they really serving? And so here, uh, you know, and what he's saying is that they're, they're really worshiping themselves. So again, on top of really, what are you people thinking? You, you're, you're, you're cutting down trees, uh, you're, you know, you're taking your wife's jewelry, you're putting it together, and, you're, and now you're bowing down to this thing. And, and now he's saying, well, you know, but who is really the object of your worship? And he's basically saying that it's an it's a it's a uh, escapade into self delusion. And so uh, this is the part of the beauty of uh, the the skill of of Yishayahu, uh, as a composer, because uh, as lofty as his language is in one sense, you know he can get down into the uh, into the barbecue pit and talk about the ritual of eating, and he, as I said, he ha holds up this half-cooked half uh, piece of meat on the spit, and he challenges the idol worshippers to say who's, who's really the beneficiary of this home cooking. And so he's really exposing the charade. And then he asks that question, who's really being satisfied? 
Now, uh, Shadal uh, really got uh, the, 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 uh, the thrust of this. Uh, look how beautifully he puts it. Um, he says, how, how sharp is the, the knife of, or the blade of mockery? After he's, uh, you know, uh, been able to build a nice fire, now he's heated himself uh, against uh, with uh, with this fire that he's burnt, uh, he's put on flames. You know, he's uh, he's lit the fire from the same trees he's cut down. And the remaining part uh, is, is now something that he is, is, is sanctified. And then, as I mentioned earlier, then uh, Yeshayahu takes this even to a, a higher level when he says, Can you imagine, says Yeshayahu, that somebody who's making pottery, right? I don't know if you've ever made pottery, but you know, whether you did it in kindergarten or you do it as, as a craft, you know, you have a lump of clay. So would a lump of clay, uh, i.e. The, the, the idol, say to the person who's the potter what he's supposed to make out of the clay? It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's as ridiculous as he said, and now he takes it even to, to more of a human level. He says, uh, would, a, would a fetus, would a baby in utero tell their parent, you know, who they're supposed to be? Uh, I'm not getting into the politically business about uh, having children choose their sexes, but anyways, Yishai was way ahead of our time. So the real question here is, why is he raising the bar on the ridicule? Why does he feel like it's really important not just to point to the object, but to point to the subject here? And what is this stuff about the hiddenness, and what is he really trying to unveil here? So now we come to really the, 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 the heart of the, of the shear. We're going to do two things. We're going to marry the idea of the hiddenness and try to deal with the business of Koresh and Cyrus the Great and ask ourselves, what is he doing uh, in uh, the, the 44th and 45th chapter of Yeshayahu number one? And number two, uh, what relevance does this have uh, to the business of consolation. So um, let's let's just uh, spend a couple of moments here on Cyrus the Great, uh, because Cyrus, is, as some of you may know, is famous for what we call uh, the, the proclamation of Cyrus, in Hebrew, Hatzarat Koresh, and we read about it in, the, in our own Tanakh. Uh, for those who are uh, uh, scholar, scholarly... Um, um, incentivized. I'm told uh, that there are um, that uh, Cyrus had his own cylinders um, where he wrote down the same history that we read, of course, in our Tanakh, his his own autobiography. But here in Sefer Ezra, Ubishnat Achat Lekorosh Melch Paras Lechalot Varashemi Yirmiyahu. The Sefer Ezra tells us about in order to fulfill the prophecy of 70 years that Yirmiyahu uh, uh, prophesied after the Qurban, that the, the, the king, uh, Koresh Melech Paras, the Persian king who defeated the Babylonians, uh, made a decree, and he told the Jewish people that they could go back to Yerushalayim and they could rebuild the Holy Temple. 
We see in Pirkei de Reb Lezer, one of the famous Midrashim, Asar, to give us some sense of the, gra- the greatness, uh, the way uh, Cyrus was perceived, at least in the eyes of the rabbis, let alone the rest of the world, Asaram Elachim Malchumi Sof HaOlam Sofo, as opposed to the three kings that, uh, that are mentioned in the Gemara Megillah, uh, here we have t- a list of ten kings who were, they got their name great because they, they were rulers of Sheva Vasrimu Me'am Medina. They really, because uh, remember, uh, Cyrus is uh, a uh, ancestor of Ahasuerosh. And uh, so he's a, he's a great ruler. He's ruling all of the known world. Now when we turn to, to the Talmudic sources, uh, we find um, something that's going to be a theme of ours, which is that there's something about Koresh uh, that is entirely has an element of duality. He's a two-sided character. Um, because the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah says, Amar Rabbi Abahu, Koresh Melech Kasher Haya. That Koresh was really a kosher king, if you will. In fact, the, the Chazal and the Gemara have a play on words that's related to Koresh. Koresh, uh, the same Hebrew letters, Chaf, Resh, and Shin, uh, as if he were actually a kosher person, uh, hinting towards his being kosher in some way or some form. But then the Gemara goes on to say uh, that he was hichmitz. And what the Gemara really says is that he, he soured. And this is based on the idea that when he initially uh, gave his order and he made the proclamation that the Jews, uh, he was speaking to Nehemiah, who was his cupbearer, and he told Nehemiah, you know, that you can go ahead and you can build, uh, you, you go back to Jerusalem, uh, the exiles can return to Israel, uh, they can build the Beit HaMikdash, um, and he made all sorts of promises to him, but at the end of the day, it turns out that he reneged on, his, on some of his promises, and he didn't quite come through uh, the way that he said he was going to do. Uh, the Gemara Megillah assembly points out that... Uh, that uh, there was a negative side uh, to uh, to Koresh, um, and that uh, and that things that with Koresh didn't work out exactly the way that we thought. So here's the Ben Kol uh, coming in over here. And the Ben Kol has a very simple question. Rabbi Nishalom, Vosvar Shaykhis is sufficient. So the uh, the Ben Kol has a really simple question. He wants to know what possible connection, why in the world are we learning about Cyrus the Great uh, and his and his failed mission uh, to fill, uh, fulfill everything that God told him um, in Sefer Yeshayahu? Uh, now, if you look at the at the chart here. And you look at the timeline, you can see the asterisks here over to the left. This is the time period of Yeshayahu ben Amotz, right? We'll give you the actual dates uh, at the bottom. You'll be able to see it more clearly. But look how far down we have to go to Hatzarat Koresh, which is all the way down here on the right. In other words, Yeshayahu uh, was in the heart of his prof- prophetic career uh, in somewhere in between 726 BCE and 786, um, the Hatzarat Koresh, the proclamation that we just read about that said the Jews can go back, uh, was uh, uh, some say 538, 539. Um, 
you know, we won't quibble a lot here, but at the end of the day, that's, that's over 100 years, uh, closer to 150 years. So here's Koresh, uh, as reported in Sefer Israel, proclaiming all of this. We have a record of it in Divrei Hayamim, also the same kind of thing. Um, and this is 150 years after the time that Yeshayahu uh, spoke his prophecy about him. Okay, so we know that Yeshayahu is a great prophet, and you know God allowed him to see a lot of things, but really, God is allowing him to see something that happens 150 years in advance, and this needs to find its way into the 44th and 45th chapter of Yeshayahu now. And this is also in the context of offering consolation. I couldn't resist, but, you know, uh, there's another proclamation, which Cyrus's proclamation, uh, you know, uh, advanced, and that was, of course, Balfour's proclamation, or declaration, uh, where it says His Majesty's government uh, view with favor the establishment of, in Palestine of a, Jew, of a national home for the Jewish people, very famous historic words, and no small measure following through uh, with uh, what was the initial intent, at least God's plan, uh, for one Cyrus the Great of Persia. Now the Mepharshim uh, get into some trouble here, and they get into some confusion about the word Mashiach that's re referred to uh, in reference to, uh, in, in terms of, of Cyrus. So the Arbarbanal uh, is very quick to uh, point out this doesn't mean he's a Messiah, it just means that he was appointed, anointed for the job, um, and uh, 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 the uh, Reb Bogensi uh, goes as far to say, I didn't see it in the other Mepharshim, but uh, not unlike the name Pharaoh, uh, he claims that Koresh is a standard name for a ruler of, of Persia. But all of that really just kind of begs the question about uh, why we have him here in Sefer Yeshayahu, and again, what does this have to do, how are Jewish people supposed to find consolation in this? So here we come now to the, to the real business of the evening. So we read uh, that um, about something that in, in, uh, in Jewish thought we call Hester Panim. Our God is a God that we don't see. Now even though lo amalti, we're right before Matan Torah. God says, you know, I, I revealed myself at Sinai out in the open, but nonetheless, uh, God is hidden from us both in view and also in what we call Hester Panim, which we'll explain in more detail. But the, the source for this is in Sefer Devarim, Perak Lamed Aleph, V'chara pibo bayom ha'hu v'azavtim v'istalti panay me'em. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'm going to hide my countenance you will not see my face. Vanochi haster astir panai bayom hahu. And then we have another pasuk that says Vanochi astira panai mehem erem achritam in Shirat Hazinu. So we have this idea of Hester Panim uh, appearing here in in uh, in chapter forty four, and we want to know um, what that is doing here, and we're wondering whether to the extent that we might find. Uh, this duality about Hester Panim, right? Because on the one hand, God revealed himself, that's what Shavuot is about. On the other hand, he's hidden. And we also have this duality about Cyrus that we uncovered in the Gemara, where he's Cyrus the Great, 
he offers this great proclamation, but there's this dark side to Cyrus as well. Shadal, uh, Shmuel David Lutzato, picks this up very quickly, and he makes the connection when he says, he quotes the Pasuk, and he said, God is the one who uh, commanded Koresh, God tells, told Koresh, or will tell Koresh, what he wants him to do. So says Shadal, So there's a hiddenness and there's an openness about everything that was done. God behind the scenes is the puppet master, so to speak, moving, um, moving Koresh around. And what we see is, you know, of this, suddenly here's a Persian king who is uh, telling the Jewish people they can go back to, to Zion and they can rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. So uh, we've pointed out a duality about, about Cyrus. He's both the great and he's also flunks his his task because he doesn't deliver on the promise the way he was supposed to. And we have an interesting contrast about um, what is this actually supposed to look like? So I offered you here an example of somebody who actually does follow through with HaKadosh Baruch Hu's wishes to the letter, and that's Avraham Avinu at the Akedah. God tells him to, to take his son to the altar. He does all of that. And then in a gorgeous posik which really shows uh, how much Avraham has integrated HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu's commandment, Vayomer Avraham, he's speaking to Yitzchak, Elohim yirelo This is not just Avraham speaking his, his opinion, but he's now fully integrated with the divine message and he's delivering it to his children. All our children should be have the same schut. Ironically, we hear another king of Persia instruct his viceroy on precisely this point of following through what God says. What does Achashverosh say to Haman? Al tapel davar mikol asher amalta. So, but uh, does Cyrus do that? No, he fails to complete uh, the task is given. So what does Hester pun him and what does that have to do with our parak? and how can we put these different pieces together? So the Mabim tells us that the essence of Hester Panim means that uh, God leaves us, so to speak, to, to, the, to our own destinies. Uh, he lets the natu- natural things occur. The Ramban says uh, this happens because uh, the people will seek me out and I won't answer. The Malbim says that this is a particular kind of, uh, uh, of exposure to natural elements and the protection of God in the period of Hester Panim it's as if God looks away, and um, even though he's there, uh, there are terrible things that can befall us. Uh, I'm not going to spend this in detail, but I thought you might like to know that the Mirtav Meliau, Rav Dessler, said uh, that there are four different uh, locales, if you will, uh, for where we find uh, Hester Panim uh, in, in all the different uh, uh, aspects of our world. But getting back to really the central message here of tonight's year and the idea that really captivated me um, and, and speaks to the question of are 44 and 45 a continuum of 43 or not? 
And that goes back to the duality of a, another duality of Hester Punim. Hester Punim is now you see me, now, now you don't, okay? But there's another aspect to that. Uh, so uh, we see Hester Punim, for instance, on an individual personal level. If you look in Medrash Rabbah, and here you're talking about um, uh, when, when a child is born out of an adulterous uh, relationship, uh, so the, the Medrash says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, um, so to speak, uh, reveals himself uh, in the Hester Punim aspect um, by having the child resemble uh, the, the uh, lover of the adulterous spouse. So th- th- this is a very dark thought, uh, but it's, it points to Hester Panim, uh, God literally hiding his face from the people who were involved uh, and putting a face on the sin that they did in a, in a way that's deeply ironic, but extremely personal from the Medrash's point of view. It's like God saying, you know, uh, gotcha, look at this, which is really pretty terrible. Um, the al Shekha Kodosh, uh, I, I just mentioned in passing, also thought that there was a dual, a dual nature uh, to uh, Hester Panim. He said, Hester kaful. There's such a thing as a, a double Hester. Uh, the language itself has a redundancy to it, which suggests there are two parts to it. And he goes on to distinguish between the Hester Panim that happened in the destruction of the First Temple and then uh, everything that happened during the time of Mordecai and Esther, where the uh, where he- Esther Hester, uh, you know, <laughs> gets gets her name from. Those of you who are punsters. So we talked about the um, the the Hester Punim uh, the first time, the second time around. And if you remember last week when we were talking about uh, the Malbim. Uh, the Malvin was saying that, that people don't understand God because uh, they, they think that there's no connection between cause and effect. That was the way he explained a verse in 43. Rav Hirsch takes this to another level, and he says that uh, there's a confusion that happens when we suffer Hester Panim and we suffer the pain that brings about our mourning. And he says that's simply because we forget we forget the connection. We forget what actually happened. The Radak uh, then points out, uh, based on a pasuk in Tehillim, that Hester Panim and Meir Panim, or Haras Panim, uh, are actually two sides of the same coin, which is the last theme we're going to come back to. Uh, Rav David Hoffman, Svi Hoffman, says uh, that um, this refers to the taking away of, of the particular Hashkocha, and this, and that's the darkness that comes with Hester Punim. Uh, so it's my privilege to quote a, 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 a some of the words of our dear friend Dr. Hesh Hirschman, with his permission, uh, when he wrote me about darkness. You can read along with me what Hesh had to say. Darkness can be part of a consolation. Again, connecting what does darkness have to do with with consolation, and Hester have to do with consolation. He says meaning the painful events are not detected and sensed, averting one's eyes or deflecting thoughts and memories that are painful, but that can quickly become pathological and spread to other elements where awareness is crucial. The person that darkens his outlook in relationship with God because he was hurt by something he ascribes to God's insouciance can only be enlightened when he decides that reaching out to God will return the warmth of the light he is missing. That takes a great deal of effort. 
To paraphrase part of our good friend Hesh's wisdom, we might say that some believers are trained to discern elements of light and hope, even in the darkest of moments. Um, if we think back to Mitzrayim and our experience in the dark in the ninth, during the ninth plague, there might be some kind of spiritual, spiritual muscle memory that's peculiar to our Jewish DNA, um, where we are able to... I'm mixing metaphors terribly here, I apologize. We'll stick with the muscle memory for right now. But we have a national memory that reminds us that we are actually able to see quite well in the darkness. Uh, as the Pasuk said, the Egyptians, uh, you know, uh, the Egyptians were, the, the dark was so severe and so intense that they couldn't see, uh, forget about social distancing, they couldn't see anybody across the room. We, we were able to see everything quite clearly. Now, the point that we're getting to here is that Ha'arat Panim and, and, uh, and Hester Panim are not only two sides of the same coin, but it's because we are human and we have limited human vision uh, that we think that Hester Panim is absolutely dark. And the Balatanya lets us know that the light and the dark are part of the same thing. Uh, a safer that I found in my grandfather's, uh, Yecheskel Schrager's library, uh, a very fascinating book called Avodat HaGershuni, Chassid Sherebbe, he says, uh, he quotes the Halshech, and he, and he says uh, that, uh, that it's only our perception that this veil, remember we said that uh, Yeshua was taking down the veil in this chapter, well, it's not just from the Goyim, he's taking down the, the idolaters, he's taking down the veil to allow us to see something in the future here about Cyrus, and he's telling us that you know we don't see uh, that the light and the dark, it, it, there is no light and dark as far as HaKadosh Baruch Hu is concerned. The light and the dark are the very much the same. And the Baal Hashem HaKadosh was very famous to saying that everything that seems negative always has an element of good in it. So the question remains, you know, why, when, when we attempt to put Isaiah's stunning prophecy about Cyrus into the largest, larger context of this fifth of the chapters of Consolation, what is it that's really so comforting here? Are we really happy saying that some guy who's going to live 150 years in the future and is going to be a failure, he's going to be Cyrus the Great Flop, if you will? You know, is that supposed to make us happy? Is that supposed to make us feel consoled as we're, you know, worrying about Yushalayim being destroyed both then uh, in Yeshayahu's time and, and, and throughout the ages? Uh, I know that there's a saying that said one man's misery may be another man's fortune, but that's, a, you know, cold comfort at best. But what I really wanted to come to here, and, and here's, here's the unique aspect. We spent last week talking about Ani and Anohi and how personal the message of consolation was. But you know, what I'm going to ask you to consider here is that the focus in this chapter is different. It's on the children of Jacob as a nation. Remember, we said Yaakov, Yisrael, and then we pointed to the name Yeshurun, which appears only once in four times in all of Tanakh, three times in Sefer Devarim, and only once in Nevi'im in Ar Perak. Uh, Yeshurun is a national name says the Radak HaYashar Ben Hamim. So why is, why is Yeshayahu doing this? Why is, if this is really true, if what we're saying holds any, any water, if you will, uh, and he's shifted the focus from a relationship that's purely personal 
one-to-one to each individual, and now he's shifted uh, to a national uh, lens, if you will. So now we understand this nivuah uh, that is 150 years uh, ahead of its time, and he's, he's telling us about a king who's going to be, be ruling uh, in, in Persia is a way of telling us that, wait a minute, something that's going to happen 150 years off from now is really going to have giant national ramifications. In other words, one might say that uh, Yeshayahu may have felt that on a personal level, uh, the response, just like the Jews' response uh, to the actual uh, Cyrus proclamation, was uh, underwhelming. Uh, Maybe Yeshayahu sensed that talking to people as individuals and looking each guy in the eye really wasn't getting what he wanted. So what about the idea that, that Yeshurun and all these ideas about Avatash, Ma, Yaakov, Avdi, Yisrael, Bachantibo, um, that he's calling to our national sensitivities. Maybe there are some people who really won't listen for themselves, but in terms of, if you will, Jewish patriotism or national patriotism, if they hear, Ko'amar Hashem Osecha V'yotzrecha Mibeten, Altira Avdi Yaakov, Yeshurun, Bachantibo, that's a battle cry, that's a call to tshuva uh, to the entire nation as a whole, where Hashem is saying, uh, if you thought that in this Hester Panim, I was leaving you, keli, keli, lama azavtani, no, 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 I'm really with you. So the common denominator of Hester Panim on the personal and national level is the feeling of being abandoned. And so when Yeshayahu shifted the focus to Cyrus and to the proclamation of Cyrus, he's saying, no, 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 I'm not going to abandon you. I'm still going to be with you, and I'll be, you'll see. 150 years, if you could get yourself out of, out of your small-minded, uh, your your uh, your limited view vision, you would seek at al al This is a, a hugely comforting thought. It's not only going to be good. Your your children are going to go back. They're going to build Zion. They're going to build Yerushalayim. Uh, this is uh, the kind of comfort uh, that maybe uh, people can really feel uh, a sense of warmth. Um, and what an amazing idea that a Baruch Hu would put Yeshayahu in a time capsule so that he could offer comfort from a perspective of 2020 hindsight uh, in something that happened 150 years uh, down the line. I want to conclude uh, just by making a reference to another aspect of comfort because uh, it has halachic ramifications, and uh, I think it might be helpful to us in looking forward and preparing for Mat and Torah. Uh, the Gemara in Bavakama tells a story about Ula, who came to Eretz Yisrael, as he did often, and there was a great tragedy, and, uh, and they invited him to go be Menachem Avel, on our topic of being of Nechum Avelim and, and the consolation here of, in these chapters of Nechama. And essentially what Ula said to the people who invited him, he says, I'm not going with you because you, bab- you people here, the way that you offer comfort is by saying the equivalent of, well, what, what can you do? Such is life. And Ula goes nuts. He, I mean, he just, he's irate. He won't go with. Um, and and uh, so the Shlach Kodosh, uh, who is uh, our, uh, uh, he's our Tzchus in our family, uh, has a lengthy explanation and, and discussion about whether we, la halacha, 
we follow Ula's ruling, and is it improper for people when they when they uh, when they go to uh, uh, the house Lo'alenu uh, uh, of somebody who's an Avel? Is it improbable? Is is it halakhically um, unacceptable to unacceptable to say, well, you know what what can you do? So uh, our encounter with the current pandemic is teaching us a useful and a pain, uh, and a, and a painful lesson about loss. At the same time that our technologies, you know, have been humbled, perhaps in a way not not known to us since uh, the Columbia spacecraft went down, Ula wanted to impress on on us that um, most of the baffling parts of human experience, uh, and our limited ability to see through them, are our own. Mankind is not required to like the Almighty's decree, but Halacha reminds us that we must bless God. That's why we say these brachas, unfortunately, when someone passes as well as a seeming for the good and for the bad. In our, in our uh, chapters, the, Isaiah taught us that sometimes HaKadosh Baruch Hu will let us in on his plans just to ease the, the pain or grief. That's what happened with the, this prophecy, I imagine, about, about Cyrus, about Hatzarat Koresh. So internalizing this lesson, as Hesh put it, takes a great deal of effort. As it would happen, tonight's shir takes us to Shuavuot, Matan Torah, Zman Matan Torah. Our rabbis told us that Har Sinai was the smallest and lowest of the mountains, and that HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose it because he wanted to teach us that if you want to acquire Torah, you need to have not only humility, but shiflut, a real sense of lacking. So um, in honor of the Yontif, uh, and in honor of uh, my 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 great-grandfather and my, my grandfather, um, we, we, we wish and hope each other that our preparations for receiving the, the Torah anew will be filled with an abundance of the, those precious commodities of shiftless and humility, and may we reach, uh, approach this holy yontif with a, a full appreciation of Isaiah's perspective of that we are a nation, we're moving closer to our destiny, and if we can all hang out together, loving each other,